And if you can early on remove the necrotic tissue uh, and coax the conditionally viable tissue to survive, uh, it really is where my practice as a very senior burn surgeon is, is headed. It's, it's graduate seminar stuff. You're listening to Deep Cuts. In this episode, Dr. Rizal Crombie, a general and burn surgeon from CT Burn Center, Yale New Haven Health System, speaks with special guest Dr. James C. Jang, general, burn, and trauma surgeon at the University of California Irvine Medical Center. Dr. Jang shares why he almost always does multi-staged burn excision and grafting surgery and what he thinks surgeons have to look for beyond robust bleeding. If you could just introduce, I can't even say everything that you've done. Your your contributions to medicine, burn care, just thank you. And you're still going. Well, thank you. It's really too kind. But I'm a, predominantly I'm an academic burn surgeon, but I'm also a full-fledged trauma, EGS, critical care, and wound surgeon, surgical critical care. This is about 30 years into my career now. I was trained by one of the great people in burn care, Marion Jordan. And with every passing year, the little nuances that I have to share with the youngsters, I trace directly back to my lineage to Marion Jordan. So there really is a coaching tree here. I'm currently at the University of California at Irvine. I'm the gray hair in the burn shop meaning that I'm not the director. I work for Victor Joe, but I'm the one who has all the stories over 30 years of taking care of burns. And I'm also responsible for wounds on the University of California Irvine campus. Fabulous. So, you know, you've had a long, illustrious career. One of the things that I always ask surgeons is, because we were never, you know, born knowing exactly how to look at a wound, how to debris, go back to the beginning when Dr. Jordan was teaching you what are the things that you looked at then that may have changed over your career that you can share with the youngsters in terms of debridement? Training was a lot more harsh back then. Mm-hmm. And it was the premise of training back in the 80s was see one, do one, teach one. And then after you got to the see one, do one, there'd be a long period of time where you're still an apprentice and a journeyman with the master still criticizing you on every case that you... That's how I learned to do burn excisions. I would sit at uh, the foot of his table at the end of work every day, and we would go over the cases of the day. And he would go over why my skin grafts failed. He said to me once, Jimmy, you think the skin grafting stuff is real easy, don't you? And I said, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh. And then he took me behind the woodshed and, you know, just read me the riot act. This, that's, that's how come your skin grafts are failing. And so it, it was by this uh, rigorousness and daily education at the, the feet of a master that I learned what an adequate excisional preparation for skin grafting is. And all sorts of tricks about how to handle tissue and what can and can't take a skin graft. And what are the special considerations when you're applying skin grafts on different surfaces? So let's look, dig a little deeper into those four things you just mentioned. Looking at the wound bed, what do you look for? You've, you've got a resident, a fellow medical student that's asking you, how do I know I'm deep enough? How do I know I've gotten all the burns? What, do you, what are you looking at in the wound bed specifically? That, that's an impossibly difficult question, and it's an impossibly difficult thing to teach. 
Because the real art of excisional preparation for grafting uh, is in that very question that you're posing. You can take a tangential knife and you can cut down to robust bleeding, but there's a lot of things that you have to look for beyond the robust bleeding to tell you whether the tissue is going to allow uh, skin graft to engraft or not. There's a lot of microtrauma to the tissue, and there are a lot of nooks and crannies, so that even if you have really robust bleeding mm -hmm. in the excised surface, that doesn't mean that you have a totally complete wall-to-wall -wall planar viable surface. And it takes a lot of experience to really get there. Jeff Saffel, who is now the past president and good friend of Marion Jordan's, used to say to Amalia Cochran, Amalia, if only you would take one more pass with that Humvee knife. <laughs> so it's, it's really, really nuanced to try to figure that out. Got it. And then you mentioned autograph versus ADM. Let's just talk about the wound being ready to take a graft. What are the things that you look for? I'm inherently lazy, and I've developed tricks over the years that allow me to be lazy with no detriment to the patient's arc of care or the patient's outcome. And my major trick is to almost never one-stage things anymore. The older I get, the more I go to multi-staged burn excision and grafting surgery. The penalty for losing cadaver skin, or in the old days when we had pig skin, mm -hmm. uh, to a graft take failure is somewhat trivial. The penalty from losing an autograft mm -hmm. is unconscionable. And so I take great advantage of the fact that I can lay down cadaver skin on something that I think might be adequate, but I don't want to take away more native tissue than I have to, and then come back in a handful of days and to assess whether that cadaver skin was able to engraft or not. Mm -hmm. And the, the really nice thing about that is if it doesn't really stick robustly and you pull it off, the areas that need more attention are color-coded. So it's paint by numbers. And, and you, know, you can just, at that point in time, it's color-coded, and you just go back and take away the stuff that's uh, screaming by virtue of its color, I need to be removed. And, you know, Dr. Jordan also taught me, there's no shame in going back even two or three times mm -hmm. with re-excision and cadaver skin, temporary grafting, mm -hmm. uh, to get it right. Because the penalty for losing autograft is that you don't close the hole and you've created a new hole. Mm -hmm. And in big burns, you're flirting with the undertaker. Right. Now, so say you have, you've, you've got an area, the wound bed is ready. How do you decide, how do you personally in your practice decide, do you want to use a dermal substitute here or do you want to just autograft it? What, what are the, some of the tenets that you look for? There are so many factors that go into that. If you're in a life-saving mode where the bow score is high, you're not really going to be worried about cosmesis. And in that instance, the trump card is cadaver skin. As a matter of fact, with the federal government, we're stockpiling cadaver skin mm -hmm. in a national strategic stockpile because it's magic. Mm -hmm. It's live human skin that you basically have as much as you care to have and you don't open up donor sites. Right. If it's not a Hail Mary, save somebody's life sort of mm -hmm. thing, then uh, cosmesis really comes into play for me. And at that point in time, we'll go through all sorts of shenanigans 
to try to have as cosmetically good an outcome as we can. Got it. So just in terms of, you know, when you think of the beginning of your career when you started with Dr. Jordan to now, if you could give one basic te- or two basic tenets about debridement that you think are important to kind of convey to your residents and your fellows, what would that be? I think the number one take-home lesson is you should almost, almost never single stage unless you are absolutely sure mm-hmm. that it's going to be one and done successfully. Right. Uh, I think that you need to have enough humility to know that when the gray hairs are not single staging, it's because they've stepped in it a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really kind of unconscionable to have an autograph failure and then have a new donor site right. and a recipient site that are both open. Right. So that's the first take home. The second take home would be there are very different modes of care for a burn patient. And when you have a high bowel score, your approach to closing the wounds by excision and grafting has nothing to do with a situation where you're not in a life-threatening situation. Right. Right. And you basically have a totally different outlook. And if I may, there's actually another evolution in my career. I did a lot of translational research when I was younger on conditionally viable tissue. Mm -hmm. And I've always seen the burn wound as conditionally viable tissue, as is stung myocardium after uh, a heart attack or uh, brain tissue after a stroke. And there's a lot of evidence, both from my work and others' works, that early on after a burn the components of the skin have a lot of viability, but that viability continues to evolve over time, over the next 24, 48, 72, what have you, hours after the injury. And I'm a huge proponent of trying to go in there and hold on to the conditionally viable tissue because I think that the outcomes, both in terms of the large surface area Hail Mary burns, Mm -hmm. as well as the cosmetic uh, outcomes are much better if you can salvage a conditionally viable dermis. But that means getting in there. Because the what I've tumbled to is death begets death. Mm-hmm. So if you have dead tissue sitting next to conditionally viable tissue, mm-hmm. that conditionally viable tissue will probably go on to die, uh, to die yeah. either you know apoptosis or necrosis. Right. And right. if you can early on remove the necrotic tissue uh, and coax the conditionally viable tissue to survive... Uh, it really is where my practice as a very senior burn surgeon is, is headed. It's, it's graduate seminar stuff. So it's, it's not for, for the beginners, mm-hmm. but it's something to strive for as you become from apprentice to journeyman to a, to a master. Right, right. Agreed. And I think that's, we had talked a lot about how that takes time. <laughs> you can't Incredible do it overnight. Time. It's not right. shake and bake. But like decades. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on any other specific differences between how you approach a child, like a baby, versus what we were talking about in terms of debridement. Well, first of all, I'm terrified of taking care of injured children. It's terrifying. It's terrifying because this is somebody's child. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing worse emotionally than losing a child. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is there really is something about youth, Mm -hmm. not only in terms of the whole organism, but in terms of the tissues. And there's a resilience to the tissue. Um, You you can just do a lot more with the tissue, and it's more forgiving. And also, the fact that the surface area is small 
it allows you to concentrate and really bring out your A game with like the 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 micro technique right. in a child that mm -hmm. you can't with an adult because the adult is large surface area and it's back breaking, right. sweltering, right. physically challenging work. In a child, the, the areas are smaller and the tissues are very forgiving mm -hmm. and very pliable. And it's just, it's a joy to operate with such young tissue, but it's terrifying right. operating on sick kids. Along that same vein, theoretical big 80, 90% burn. What are your thought processes in, in your practice about when you take them to the operating room, how long you're there, and if you're there for short or long, what makes you change the duration of it? I just looked after an 83-year-old with a 51% burn. He was in relative good health. He was a vegetarian. He was a little bit skinny. And, uh, you know, I'm fairly new to UCI. It was about uh, month three then. Sure. And so there were a lot of eyeballs on me. It's like, what is the old man going to do? Mm -hmm. And we spent a great deal of effort really nailing the resuscitation and, and going after my bag of tricks. Because 83-year-olds with 51% burns right. do not resuscitate smoothly. Correct. But we went through my bag of tricks and got him ready for the OR within 48 hours wow. in fine fettle, not intubated. Right. And we went to the OR. And I basically tangentially excised all of the necrotic with dermis everywhere left behind, wow. conditionally viable, except for the back of the thighs and the buttock, which had to be a Yabovi excision. Okay. And he had a... Probability survival about one in seven, mm -hmm. according to the NBR. We were close. Wow. He, he got through a couple of rounds, and the cadaver skin that I put on, on the dermis all took. Wow. The, the only cadaver skin that failed was the one that went on the fat. So when it's a Hail Mary situation, I try to resuscitate and find fettle as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. and I try to hold on to dermis as much as possible. I, I do believe that the conditionally viable dermis still has some immunological barrier mm -hmm. function, even though you don't have an intact epidermis. Right. And the fact that I was able to engraft cadaver skin on the vast majority of this very large burn in an 83-year-old continues to excite me about this thesis that, that I practiced towards the end of my career mm -hmm. as a, an aggregate of all the tricks I've learned over 30 years. Fabulous. So now... I'm going to lead you a little bit, but why did it fail on the, on the fat? Fat is very unforgiving. If you look at the microscopic anatomy of fat globules, they typically have one feeding arteriole and one feeding venule, mm -hmm. a draining venule that comes out the bottom of the fat globule. And if you torque that in any fashion, mm -hmm. you basically kill that fat globule. And then you have this puddle of like dead fat. Uh, which invites bacterial overgrowth. Right. And this was also on a dependent area, the buttocks and the back of the thighs. The take-home lesson for me from that case was I probably should have gotten either a clinitron bed or I probably should have done what uh, Bill Hickerson does and put the patient face down and put billy lights on it to, to get it to dry out. Got it. Because truly, the, the skin graft adhered everywhere else except for the fat. Right. Fat is very, very, very unforgiving. Right. It's hard to do. Right. So you started mentioning a little bit of the physiology of it dies off, it kind of bubbles there, and then invites bacteria. And then you and I are always constantly battling biofilm. Mm -hmm. I mean, how? what are you looking for in the wound to, to say that, oh, gosh, I've got some biofilm here, and then what do you do about it? 
I'm not as good as you about reading the biofilm. The, the talisman that I have for that biofilm and the bacterial overgrowth is the failure for the uh, cadaver skin to adhere. If, if the cadaver skin becomes that, I know that my bacteria count is in zone. Got it. And I know that my arterial supply is adequate. Right. So to me, it's adherence of the, of the cadaver skin. I also find that if I'm in a tough situation, like these cases we're talking about, yeah. meshing two to one is very nice. Right. To not have puddles forming mm-hmm. under sheets. It's very, very, very nice. That's excellent. So then just to pivot to an analogous topic, one of the other expertise that you have is really managing some complex wounds. Mm-hmm. How is that different in terms of, like, say, a necrotizing fasciitis, different from a burn and how you would approach that in your debridement? What are you looking for in the wound? The wounds are, boy, are they complicated. Yes. You need to look at multi-azimuth problems and knock each one out in detail. First, you need to make sure that it's not diabetes-driven. Mm-hmm. And if it is diabetes-driven, then you need to get good control of the diabetes and A1C. If it's not diabetes, then you need to make sure that, that there's not a venous drainage issue mm-hmm. because venous pooling is just going to rain on your parade. And then finally, you have to worry about arterial inflow. And uh, that's why the vascular surgeons are, are so very important there. Also, radiation wounds. You can't yeah. win in a radiation wound. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about that, right? Mm-hmm. With wound care, I think you need to recognize early on that there is a large subset of the people that you take care of who are uh, basically maintenance patients. Correct. And you're never really going to close them. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to hold out hope for them that they're going to be closed one day. But you uh, sell to them the fact that, hey, we're maintaining this quite well, and it's not crimping your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we like to see you every one or two weeks, you know, for the right. social visit, right? Right. So it's, it's really patient selection with the wound care. And then once you get the right subset that's healable, it's the same basic stuff with the wound bed preparation. And the only other sneaky trick that I have from three decades is my understanding that in a hostile recipient bed, mm-hmm. mesh graft doesn't work very well. It's kind of like the lost colony of Roanoke in, in North America. Right, right. When you're trying to colonize in a hostile recipient site, mm-hmm. you need to have a large colony. Because if the colony is not large enough, when the supply ship comes back from England 12 months later, the colony's dead, dead. and died, yeah. right? So what I find, and chronic wounds tend to be hostile environments, no matter what you do to prep them, what I find is that a large plug of tissue like a punch graft Mm -hmm. or even post-it stamp grafting seem to work better in a hostile recipient. The post-it stamp grafting I I learned when we had some 95, 98% burns in Washington, D.C. that were in hospital for a year or a year and a quarter. And they became so highly colonized towards the end of the year that you couldn't get anything to graft on them except for these larger colonies Mm. of post-it stamp grafts. Those are amazing. Hey, as we're talking, I'm just amazed at the the tool bags that you have in your back pocket to kind of face a lot of challenging situations. Marion taught me very well. Yeah, no, and I realize that. And, you know, and I think about just the purpose of, of having this discussion and talking about education. What do you think is the biggest 
challenge that you and I have. Our, our world, as surgeons, has have changed. There's a pandemic. There's currently a war. As we talk about our specialty, whether it be burns or, or reconstructive plastic surgery, wound debridement, what, what do you think is the biggest challenge that we're in facing? In terms of the first thing that I'd like to say is that we are in a true crisis mode. You know that I do a lot of disaster preparedness mm-hmm. and civilian defense. We are really in deep trouble because the training pipeline for burns was cut off almost 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And the young trainees do not have exposure to burns, as you alluded to. Right. It's just the young faculty members who have no no interest whatsoever and no burn fellowship, and right. they're just stuck doing it. So that needs to be reversed at the highest level of urgency with the American Burn Association mm-hmm. in conjunction with organized American medicine, AAMC, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You need to return the pipeline of burn training formal burn training mm-hmm. to the American surgical craft. The, the other remedy to these problems has to deal with mentorship. One of the most valuable things that I did as a young burn surgeon was to go on the traveling fellowship. Mm-hmm. The American Burn Association has this traveling fellowship, which is pretty much yours for the asking, which allows you to go around the country and see how things are done by different shops. There's 20 different ways to skin a cat. Right. And I've never visited a burn shop, and I've traveled all over the globe visiting burn shops. I've never visited a burn shop that I didn't walk away with something that uh, was a real gem that I added to my bag of tricks. And even my young associate right now, I keep trying to get her to sign up for the Traveling Fellowship. We are all responsible for educating Mm -hmm. our follow-on generation of burn surgeons and I think cross-pollinization of ideas by actually getting them into people's different ORs is beyond measure in terms of its value. There's a lot of art that's disappearing with old farts like me, and we want to transmit the knowledge before we're in the grave. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Sure. My pleasure. And it, we learned them by making mistakes, too. Understood, and we actually talked yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, I think we all made a lot of mistakes, mm-hmm. right? You have to be humble.